Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. BetOnline continues to be your number one source for all your basketball wagering needs, including pro and college hoops throughout the year. With up-to-the-minute odds, stats, and trends, you can follow your favorite team's path to the playoffs with in-game live betting, contests, and all the best player props. Experience the world's best wagering platform anytime from your desktop or mobile devices. Head to BetOnline today to become part of the team. And remember to use our promo code BELIEVE. That's B-L-E-A-V for your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online. The game starts here. All right, folks, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer podcast on the Believe Network. This is episode nine of season six. Today, we're going to be talking about the um, NCAA and specifically the NIL and pay-for-play decision uh, that occurred in an Eastern uh, Federal District Court in Tennessee uh, that involved both Tennessee, the states of Tennessee and Virginia. And essentially what the decision said from that district court judge was that uh, a preliminary injunction was issued to prevent irreparable, irreparable harm that was going to occur to athletes, because that's the standard in those um, uh, in those hearings, is is if that if a plaintiff or a defendant can show that there will be irreparable harm from um, from from uh, you know some sort of behavior that an injunction would issue, and so in this case, the judge was essentially saying that if um, the athletes would have to be subject to NIL restrictions, uh, specifically that uh, they could not have pay for play and uh, they could not use NIL to make decisions about where to go to school and NIL being used in recruiting, which had been uh, restricted in those two states and in some sense by the NCAA um, that ultimately would have been irreparable harm. So what does this mean? Well, it means that at least in Tennessee and in Virginia, that athletes playing college sports in those states will now be able to essentially get pay for play. Um, and also um, with regard to NIL, be able to be recruited with NIL. So for example, if you want to go to the university of Tennessee or university of Virginia or Virginia tech um, and uh, or, or the university of Memphis, and you're sort of um, you're looking at different schools and you're saying, okay, well, you know, where do I want to go? And ultimately the the folks who are recruiting you, the head coach or whoever the recruiting team is, and they say, oh, well, we can, you know, pay you X amount of dollars because we have so many donors coming in, uh, that sort of thing. Now, the interesting caveat to all of this is that there is still NCAA rules. And so, of course, there has to be some sort of um, – compliance with that. But that being said, this decision essentially says that there's a preliminary injunction, meaning that there is a stop to those NCAA rules 
and uh, and and legally, these players can now um, basically get paid for play, uh, and uh, NIL can be used in recruiting. So this is a very very significant decision, and uh, it's something that I think is is going to be monitored uh, and watched. And uh, it's it sort of highlights a bigger discussion going on around the country right now with regard to uh, sort of the pay for play and athletes and what is NCAA going to look like and what the sort of changing model with uh, ultimately conferences and teams going to different conferences and the whole realignment. There's just been a lot of changes, but I kind of want to break down this decision, but also with a larger focus on sort of where the NCAA goes from here. You know, with this decision now, of course, look, ultimately this decision is probably going to be appealed and uh, there might be a different decision at the higher level court. And if this got to the Supreme Court, you know, sort of who knows what would happen. But ultimately, the last time a decision regarding the NCAA reached the Supreme Court, uh, it was a 9-0 decision uh, with essentially the same makeup of the court. Uh, in favor of the athletes, essentially saying that scholarships could not be restricted. And that was in the Alston NCAA case. So not specifically to NIL, but there seems to be a deliberate decision by the courts to basically rid the NCAA of any restrictions on an athlete's ability to make money. So I want to break this down a little bit. I, you know, and again, I want to start this off by saying I don't think this means the end of the NCAA. Clearly, there's going to be some appeals here. Clearly, there could be some change in policy. Uh, and ultimately, we'll sort of see how this all plays out. But uh, these are sort of just my thoughts on this. I think the, you know, the NCAA's fall from grace, again, it's not final, and this is a, and it's not entirely its fault. Even though the NCAA does have some, uh, some blame to take, specifically in not being proactive, in some of these things and allowing litigation to really drive a change uh, or legislation to drive the change through California's um, Fair Pay to Play Act and sort of introducing NIL and creating what many a athletic administrators have referred to as the Wild West, uh, combined with the um, transfer portal, which is also coming under legal scrutiny. And so is a de definition of um, college athletes uh, as to whether they are independent contractors slash students or whether they are employees. And all these things are looking to continue to put pressure on the NCAA, again, to uh, not limit um, an athlete, college athlete's ability to make money while in school. So it's also interesting, too, that if you look at this, I think social media really kind of I think, turn the corner on a lot of these different things because it gave athletes and really everyone under the sun a platform uh, for branding and sharing content. So it was inevitable that brands and celebrities would use the platform for monetization. I mean, that was just, it was, it was bound to happen, right? Everybody now has a broadcast channel. And of course, when name, image, and likeness or NIL legislation was introduced in California, it spread across the country uh, and, but that was only one step in the process, right? Uh, because I think the courts and public opinion was already leaning towards paying college athletes something beyond scholarship and education and access to a national audience on television. 
which by the way, are very big deals. And for a long time, that was satisfactory for, for athletes. But I think, um, you know, ultimately there's something to be said uh, about, um, and of course, by the way, with the national audience access, it was really leading into a larger payday when, when, um, essentially men's basketball players and, um, NFL, uh, basically soon to be NFL players were about to get drafted. Right. Um, so there was some sort of marketability to that, but I think EA sports and the whole decision that occurred, um, with Ed O'Bannon, uh, in, in terms of, uh, the sort of taking of the name image and likeness of college athletes and not paying them. Of course, now we're going to have a 2000, I think 25 EA sports game coming out. So that's going to be, um, pretty interesting how that plays out and what the fallout is from that in terms of athletes that felt like they've been paid enough. I know I've definitely been watching the um, announcers, um, uh, Chris Fowler and Kirk Herbstreet, who have done some announcing for the, uh, for that game. So I've been following some of that stuff on, um, on X, but again, the one thing I want to come back to though, is the NCAA's roots and more importantly, its mission are really in amateurism. And it's always been that way. And it's always been based on education. It's not been based on fundraising or deal-making or branding. So if you're wondering why is the NCAA not, not been so great at this, it's because that's not what they're supposed to be doing, right? I think, you know, even though the NCAA does control March Madness uh, and many of its trademarks, and, and it really um, advocates on behalf of those trademarks and zealously uh, enforces them. Uh, the money that's collected from that is distributed to the underlying schools and conferences. And yes, some money is kept by the NCAA for administrative and paying their executives. But for the most part, that money is distributed to the colleges. Uh, and of course, this is similar to the college football playoff, which is a separate entity uh, that also distributes the revenue it collects from the television contracts to the schools that make it into the CFP, which of course is going to continue to grow uh, particularly as ESPN looks to close that deal for CFP and more money will be made from that because uh, obviously it's expanding to 12 teams and then there's talk about um, expanding it to 16 teams. So we'll see. And obviously a, in the back of everybody's mind is this issue of player safety. You know, now we're adding more games to the season. Um, you know, I'm sure there's some players that don't like it. I'm sure there's other players that do like it. Um, uh, Clearly, uh, NIL is going to be better for them because there's more exposure. Uh, but there's got to be something to be said about some of the safety here. And um, the hope is that the players were consulted about it. If if not, I think it potentially highlights the problem with, uh, with the situation. Now, of course, I don't think this is all at the NCAA's hands or feet. I think that the universities and the professional leagues probably and arguably have more uh, more blame uh, to take in this. Let me give an example. The National Football League or the NFL and the National Basketball Association or the NBA have never seriously put the resources into to building a proper minor league development system for graduating high school athletes. Uh, unlike, let's say, Major League Baseball, the National Hockey League, or even soccer. Uh, matter of fact, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver was recently quoted as saying that the NIL changes in college sports specifically men's basketball, may lead to some tough decisions regarding the G League, which is their development league, named after Gatorade. Uh, it used to be called the D League, for the development league. Uh, as players can now make money in college, which is leading to less talent going to the developmental league. 
And of course, this goes back to the one and done rule with regard to um, the NBA. They require high school athletes, if they want to get drafted, to play basketball in the NCAA for one year. Now, there are some guys that go overseas, but ultimately, uh, that is 99.9% of the time, it's athletes going from high school, one year of college, declaring for the draft. The NCAA has never lifted that rule. And I think in all fairness, the rule should be lifted. There is no sensible reason why that rule is in play. If they're worried about safety, then put them in the G League and have them develop for a year. Um, that's sort of what it's for. It's what Major League Baseball has done. It's what the, you know NHL has done. And it, what's what soccer does through its club teams and development systems. Uh, I think it's worked well. So, uh, and of course, the NFL has done the same thing. You know, arguably... Um, there was the quote years ago from uh, Mike, Mike Vrabel, the former uh, New England Patriot and former head coach of the Tennessee Titans, when asked about um, when asked about um, the I think a reporter had said something to him like, you know, well, why doesn't the NFL have a uh, minor league system? And his response was, you know, candidly, well, we do. It's called the NCAA. And maybe that was a Freudian slip, but it still came out. And I, I think, you know, and I appreciate him being honest. I think all of us do. But this sort of federal district uh, judge in Tennessee, this decision is only going to exasperate the NIL issue in college sports for the immediate term, obviously assuming there's going to be an appeal and later higher court decisions, because it at least removes limitations on NIL and pay-for-play in Tennessee and Virginia for those universities. Uh, for using NIL to recruit players. Um, obviously, there's other states that may uh, follow this unless current legislation needs to be changed or university rules prevent it. But ultimately, this decision says, at least for Tennessee or the states that are in the Eastern District that are subject to um, to sort of this court, or the, at least the states that were subject to this court through this litigation, Virginia and Tennessee, there's not going to be restrictions, at least for the immediate term. This doesn't mean it's going to go across the country, but legislation could then, you know, legislators could look at this. Um, athletic administrators could look at this and say, hey, we should pursue this in our own our own state because eventually this is probably going to reach us. So, um, and particularly in two more, let's say, conservative states, uh, not that I don't think really, um, this is really a left or right issue with regard to NIL. I think it's just more about, um, at least for the athletes, it's about fairness. But then I think for the NCAA, um, which I seem to agree with as well, you know, it's about how to continue to satisfy amateurism. Because look, again, the NCAA's mission is really about education and amateurism. And the blame for realignment is not in their camp. That's the universities and the conferences. The blame for the one-and-done rule and the junior year rule in the NFL is not at the NCAA's hands. The NCAA can really only be blamed for, I guess you'd go back to March Madness and the money that's collected. They're essentially a conduit to collect the money to give to the schools, but they're mostly a compliance body uh, that issues rulings and uh, essentially for violations to be in, in sort of in the club, essentially. Um, and of course, the blame could be put on the NCAA for not issuing rules or removing the rules on NAL at an earlier point, right? So, again, will other states follow this? Maybe. Um, but I also, again, come back to the point that uh, the NBA needs to do the right thing and remove its one-and-done rule. And the NFL should follow suit by removing its junior year rule and for safety reasons, which are 
documented uh, with regard to how quick and much stronger the game is at the NFL level compared to the college level is to utilize the United Football League, which is the combination of the XFL and the USFL, uh, which is now under one one uh, one company now, one tent, uh, if you will, to use that as a minor league system, spring football minor league system. Uh, that That to me, I think would be the best path forward. Will it happen? I don't know. But I think there's some agents in the business and some other executives in the NFL that uh, would say that uh, a minor league system will probably never come about. But I think the United Football League does present an interesting option. Now, what does this mean for the NCAA? Well, I think that ultimately the future of the NCAA is by separation. And what do I mean by that? Well, I think you can separate the profit-making sports or the revenue-generating sports from the non-revenue-producing sports. So you can have a Division One, Division Two, you can have men's basketball, football, and then the other sports, right? And of course, uh, women's basketball, um, you know, it 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 is definitely growing. The numbers there are obviously not at the level of what um, men's basketball and football is. And I think uh, arguably that the, the data would back up that um, a lot of those men's programs are helping to fund some of the other programs that are in the school. So, for example, um, it's men's basketball and football that fund the other sports programs on-campus endeavors, research. Um, and again, universities are not generally profit-making sort of financial powerhouses. They're not entrepreneurs, right? I mean, obviously there's can be some great schools and they can steward that money well, and they can have big endowments and they can be very successful in that regard. But ultimately universities are not generally in that place. Now, you could make the argument that universities should be in that place because they should be training and following some of the same principles they're teaching, right? So if they're teaching, for example, in a business school, if you're teaching sort of financial stability and stewardship, then the school should also be practicing those things too, right? And it would be a good way to learn, uh, you know, from from seeing. So, and again, a lot of schools do this well, but there's definitely going to be a division just by nature of the fact that you're going to have successful schools and unsuccessful schools and you're going to have schools that are going to want to have pay for play and others that that won't and you're going to have you know certain schools are going to want to split revenue and others that won't and of course this decision doesn't go nationwide yet this is specific for virginia and tennessee but this eventually could you know spread across the country depending on how the litigation plays out and of course, there's so many other pieces of litigation out there right now with regard to employee status, regarding um, um, Title IX issues, with regard to compliance with men's and women's sports, and which essentially Title IX says that if you accept federal dollars at the university level, which is pretty much every school in the country, even private schools, uh, that you cannot cancel, let's say, all women's sports and keep men's sports or just cancel all the non-revenue producing sports that are women's sports and keep all the men's sports. Title IX essentially says, this was signed by President Nixon back in the 70s, essentially says that you have to treat sports equally or fairly, right? Uh, so it doesn't mean that you have to do one for one. You know, potentially you could cancel a couple programs here and keep one over here, but it ultimately needs to be treated fairly. This happened a few years ago when there were some complaints about uh, the women's facilities for, for basketball. 
And of course, there were some changes made after this because clearly the men were traveling better than uh, the women and had better sort of facilities and travel um, accommodations. And I think the argument in the past was that, well, the men's sports are making money, but of course, under Title IX, this is an issue, right? Of course, there's this employee classification issue. And, you know, so in terms of if athletes, college athletes are determined to be employees, this now raises uh, additional insurance coverage, workers' compensation, although some of that stuff is covered already, uh, even as independent contractors, uh, you're going to have some additional uh, costs that come into this. So not only will it be pay for play in terms of, you know, sort of your racing to compete with other schools in terms of what you're going to give and get and this sort of thing, but also it's and in terms of getting donors in the door and all this, it's also going to be compliance with Title IX and, and how that works out, particularly if the men's sports get paid a certain amount, the women's sports also get paid that amount. Uh, is it every athlete down the line? This is why I think that separation by level is probably best. And, and it's probably going to be um, a business decision where it's, you're going to have the NCAA or these schools in the power four or power five separate themselves and separate themselves from the NCAA and really just become a private entity. Uh, and essentially treat it like a lower level of professional sports, uh, which is going to be very, very interesting how that plays out and how that falls into compliance. But these are all issues that um, athletic departments are going to have to deal with and state legislatures are going to have to deal with and the athletes are going to have to deal with. And of course, one of the things that I, I sort of like about this, though, this decision is that it's not all bad, right? If you have a capitalistic or a capital... Um, capitalism system with an, in the approach to NIL, it really goes back to California's original approach to NIL, which was capitalism. It said, athletes, go out and broker your own deals, let the market decide. And then ultimately, the schools got involved and began to manage some of that and change some of that system. And probably because the athletes were saying to themselves, you know, like, either one, it was too difficult to broker some of these deals or to manage this as you're going to school and also playing sports. Or it was also the universities basically saying we want to manage this and make sure that we're in compliance. Or I guess you could also make the argument that it was the idea that ultimately the schools would make money on this as sort of administrative fee. That hasn't been done yet to my knowledge, but ultimately that's been an issue in the back of, I think, um, some folks' uh, heads in the industry. And so one, thing, one of the good things about capitalism in this sense is that NIL will essentially be driven by the market how much money is raised and how much the alumni want to put in and what the collectives can do and what each university can do. And that's going to create some competition. Of course, you're going to have the haves and the haves nots as well. Uh, but ultimately in any industry, you're going to have also rules and regulations, both from a government and industry and policing standpoint. But I think professionals and participants were also going to police each other. Uh, and you're going to know who sort of the good folks are and the bad folks are in the business. And also, by the way, the free press is going to play a role in this because they're clearly going to monitor this and see what's going on. And in looking at Congress, there's been some talk about maybe Congress might introduce you know, an employee exemption for the NCAA and the universities. I just don't think that's going to happen. Congress does not want to get involved in this. I think ultimately they're going to rely on the courts to determine this uh, and state legislatures to determine it. And I think that's the proper way to do it. Um, it's just unlikely to have any federal legislation benefiting um, uh, at the NCAA.
I just don't see it happening. I think there's a lot of opposition uh, to the NCAA receiving any favor in this regard. Now, it may turn out that if you split the divisions and you had a profit-making division and a, and a sort of uh, more of an academic division, then in that sense, you might have Congress or state legislatures pass some sort of um, you know, exception, uh, particularly Congress would have to do this from an antitrust standpoint. But there might be some industry exceptions for the non-revenue producing sports that they would be considered non-employees, that sort of thing. But of course, I could also see legislatures rushing to pass legislation um, through sort of university and conference lobbyists to streamline changes to NIL laws that allow for NIL being used as a recruiting tool. And, you know, for better or worse, the marriage between NIL and recruiting uh, will drive decision-making for athletes and universities. And collectives will become essentially like hedge funds or special purpose acquisition companies or SPACs, as they're called, uh, to bring the best athletes to the best universities for a price. And that is both, I guess, in some sense exciting, but then also in some sense very scary for both the athletes, the universities, the entire college landscape. And again, let me come back to this point. The NCAA was never meant to be in the profit-making business. Neither were the universities, by the way. But all of that changed with television contracts. And, you know, frankly, the proverbial ship has sailed for both the NCAA, the universities, the conferences, the brands, and the college athletes uh, to make and share in NIL, and both in the process and in the revenue. And so problems will continue to persist, I'm sure. Um, and it's also imaginable that some of these changes may, uh, may have folks regretting it in the future. You know, there's something to be said about being in a college model that allows for some protection and, and to not be fully sort of open market. And, and I think that, um, again, we'll see how this plays out. It could be one of those things where it happens and it's like, why didn't we do this before? But I just think that, you know, ultimately the NCAA did serve a purpose and it's going to be very interesting how this plays out. Uh, particularly in the divide between revenue and non-revenue producing sports. Uh, so in, in many ways, the Wild West, as we talked about earlier, just got wilder. And it's going to be very interesting how this plays out. So again, folks, thanks for listening in. Uh, this is Jeremy Evans, your host of the California Sports Lawyer Podcast. As always, appreciate uh, you making us the number one rated uh, entertainment media sports law podcast in the world. Look forward to being back with you uh, next week. And this episode has been brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you so much.